Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to the Andy Staples Show. It's another Dear Andy edition. It's a Monday. We got to start your week the right way. And the only way to do that is with a huge dose of Ari Wasserman and massively scorching takes from Ari. Don't worry. They're going to get real scorching by the end because we're going to be talking steak. We're going to be talking how to cook it, how to eat it, probably how it affects who you are going to hire. So we, we have lots to talk about, Ari. If it were my podcast, Andy, I'd flip it. I would do food first and then football if there's time. But, you know, hey, you're you're in charge here. We have to tease a little bit. We have <laughs> to tease people, get people all the way through to the end. We don't want them dropping off early. But, no, there will be hot steak discussion as we go forward. But I, I want to start with a question I got that was it was during the Tennessee coaching search. So the, when you hear it, it's going to be framed kind of like, oh, Tennessee hasn't hired a coach yet. But I think it's a good universal question because I think it's one of those that there's probably a lot of fan bases asking this now because they want their particular team to be out of the situation that they're in now. So this is from James, and it's conventional wisdom seems to be that Tennessee needs someone with, a, with program building experience. But if we look at recent programs that have broken out of a malaise, do they follow this pattern? Are there examples of hot coordinators succeeding at jobs that weren't already primed for success? I think it's a good question because I got in an argument before Tennessee hired Josh Heupel with some Vols fans who said, oh, no, it has to be someone who's been a head coach before. I said, it doesn't have to be. I mean, Derek Dooley had been a head coach before, and he didn't do very well. So this is an interesting question, Ari. Did, do, do you have to have that experience to get a program out of a bad spot? I think as we move forward, Andy, that the idea of having to have head coaching experience is kind of fading, at least to me anyway. Um, I, I don't know uh, exactly what athletic directors feel like their program needs, but a lot of times I think that at both the NFL and college level, you see coaches recycled more than young up-and-coming coaches getting a chance. And in the sport right now, it seems that Young offensive minds or young people with new ideas are the ones that are getting a lot of really important assistant jobs. I mean, Michigan just revamped their entire staff, and I think all of them are in their 30s but one. Yeah. You know, and it's like that's kind of what it is. And, you know, I know that the two uh, most recent young coaches in terms of major success in college football are Lincoln Riley and Ryan Day, but both of those guys took over programs that were already built. I think that you – um, are in a position right now where it feels more comfortable that if you go get somebody who's been in the big chair because they know how to do it. But I think that the risk reward of getting somebody new, somebody you have faith in, somebody that 
you know, is smart or has a different way of doing things or uh, has a new recruiting strategy or can connect the kids better. I mean, I think that the risk of hiring somebody sharp who's never done it before is probably lower than the risk of hiring somebody who's been fired or, or didn't really do all that well at their previous stop. I, I think that's an interesting point. And, and in college, so we've got the we've got the guy who's kind of the exception to every rule, and that's Dabo Sweeney. So he did take he took over a program where, where Tommy Bowden had just been fired. Dabo was the receivers coach. He'd never even been a coordinator at that point. So he obviously raised them to the level of annual national title contender, perennial national title contender. So there's an example of a guy who took over a program that needed a lot of help. And he didn't have head coaching experience. And in fact, the, the lack of head coaching experience is probably what allowed him to make some of the choices that had to be made to, to get there because he did it in a fairly unconventional way. Uh, around the same time, Ari, Notre Dame fired Charlie Weiss and they hired Brian Kelly, who had been successful at three previous head coaching stops and got the result they wanted. So I, I think there's, there's a couple different ways to do this, but I, I think you're right on the the not necessarily needing head coaching experience. We, we bring up Ryan Day and Lincoln Riley, but the, they're not great examples. Um, you know, LSU had a guy who'd been a horrific head coach before at Orgeron, and he'd been the interim, and, and he was an assistant when he got got the elevated to, to full-time head coach. But he didn't win the national title by doing anything he did as a head coach before. So maybe perhaps the, the Ole Miss experience was a learning one. I... I think you go to the NFL, you look at a couple situations where you got some more recent examples of programs that needed some help that went the assistant route and it worked. Uh, Sean McVay with the Rams, Kyle, Kyle Shanahan with the 49ers, both of them got their teams to the Super Bowl despite not having any head coaching experience previously. Yeah, you know, and here's the thing that I, I think is, is really interesting. A lot of the programs that are in a position right now to need to rebuild the way Tennessee is, aren't at the top of the ladder. So the most successful coaches who are on their way up are often getting offered jobs earlier than they would have in the past and mm -hmm. are already like trying to knock on the door of the big, the big 10, uh, not the conference, the big 10 schools. Right. <laughs> um, and if you're Tennessee and you're on the way up, just to use it as an example, you're kind of in that weird middle ground where you're a really good job at a major program, but there are some question marks about, you know, support from within. You know, there were question marks about who the athletic, athletic director was going to be before the hire was made. Um, you know, all those things come into play. The young hotshot coach who is waiting for his first opportunity might not want to go there. So you might be put in a position where there just aren't a lot of options. So I think it's an interesting thing that you brought up with Ed Orgeron. It's like there's two different types of coaches. The best coaches do what? They adapt, right? Um, right? And that means within their own program as the years go by, and that means learning from past mistakes. Now, there's coaches who are stubborn. Pete, Pete Carroll is another example of yeah. that. Pete Carroll, Ed Orgeron's mentor, Pete Carroll was a bad NFL coach who became a great college coach who then became a great NFL coach. Right, and – you know, there's coaches who can adapt with the times, right, and, and change their offense or change their recruiting strategy or come up with a new way of of hiring people when uh, there's inevitable staff turnover. And there's coaches who are stubborn, get fired, and then blame the program or the circumstance and don't take accountability for it. And I think if you're the, the first coach, 
you have an ability to have not been successful at a, a previous stop, learn from those mistakes, new circumstance, new geography, new region of the country, and you can have a chance to win at a big rate. Um, so it's kind of a tricky thing. And it's like, I think that it would feel so much more comfortable when you're talking about something as important as hiring a coach. And there was like a blueprint, like a cookie cutter way of getting a really good guy. But it's funny because sometimes the coaches that we don't think are going to be successful are really successful. And sometimes the ones that are slam dunks aren't. And they all have different backgrounds. They all have different uh, strengths. They're all different types of recruiters. They're all you know, there are different types of people. And I think sometimes it's all about fit in terms of, you know, where you are and how things are. But, you know, if I were a athletic director and like if I were a place like Arizona, for instance, who just hired um, Jed Fish, like I would have gone out and found somebody with Arizona backgrounds in their mid thirties who knew high school coaches in Arizona. And I would have like started with somebody who was going to have an offense. That you was would have hired Kenny Dillingham. I might've hired you Kenny just, Dillingham. You just hired Kenny Dillingham. Yes. Uh, I think you did. And you know, I, I think that that man probably would have walked to Arizona if they offered him the job. So like if you, uh, that's how I would have gone. So hiring somebody older or somebody who might not be a fit there, it just, wasn't the right fit to me. I would just go get somebody who would recruit his ass off, know the area, and try to do something different to spark some life into the program rather than hiring recycled coaches over and over again that just aren't that haven't been successful. I'm not saying Fish isn't going to be good. I'm just saying like my route. Yeah, he's never thinking, had a chance. Yeah, he, he's never had a chance to be head coach either. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah. He's he's in the boat of of the assistant coach. He's just been an assistant at a lot of different levels. We'll be right back after these words. It's interesting that Tennessee, you know, they hired Josh Heupel, and the the question was about you know program building. Josh Heupel didn't really build the program. He uh, he got to UCF when they were coming off an undefeated season and kind of kept it going. Now uh, that's the question: is can he can he build from kind of that that level of things are not great? It's kind of more like when he arrived at Oklahoma as a player. You know, he was there for Bob Stoops' first season at Oklahoma. And it's weird to think about because Oklahoma's been so good since then. But Bob, uh, when Bob Stoops took over, Oklahoma was not good. The The John Blake years were not great. And so, you know, Pipel got to see that first as a player and then as a coach as they built that up. So he has been around that environment before. I'll be curious to see if he can do it at Tennessee where it, it it's this is a unique situation and this is something Bob Stoops didn't have to deal with when he got to Oklahoma where all of your best players by the way now play for Oklahoma because they could just transfer and play somewhere right away. Uh Wanya Morris is there, Eric Gray's there now. Uh Tennessee they've got to he's got to figure out the roster because they're just losing guys. I mean they lost their I think they lost their kicker and their backup punter to the portal this past week. Yeah, I I don't envy him. Um, I, I think it's an interesting discussion, too. It's like, I think you could make an argument that UCF right now is a better job. Right right now. And and I would argue, in fact, I don't, I don't think I have to argue because one of the beat writers basically told me this. When Frost was at UCF and he was about to take the, the Nebraska job. So this was the day that UCF played USF in that that classic Black Friday game that was just awesome and it was you know melt your face offense one of the Nebraska beat writers had come down to do a Scott Frost story and I'm standing there in the press box in Orlando with him and he's like there's so much more talent on the field here at UCF 
than there than there is in Nebraska. I don't. I, I wonder if Scott Frost realizes that. And it was true. It was true. Now I don't know that that it, UCF's roster is all that much more talented than Tennessee's roster right now. Um, oh, it's but, not. No, it's well. It, well it, this, I mean, that's after the transfers, story. if there's anybody left, maybe. But like last year, right. it wasn't. Yeah. But but in terms of trajectory and, and in terms of who right. you have to play, because UCF doesn't have to play Alabama and, and Florida and Georgia every year. So that that's the tricky part. But I think you're right. And, and I think if you look at, at how much and how many coaches want to be in on that UCF job, you can see how good a job it is. Uh, see how many ADs want to be on that, uh, that UCF AD job. It's a very good job because the circumstances are good. Tennessee's circumstances are really tough, and it's going to take – a lot of work to get them better. Now, that's the thing. You're going to get paid a lot to make them better. And if you make them better, you're going to get paid a lot more. So, you know, Josh Heupel works at Tennessee. He's making $4 million a year right now. If he wins at Tennessee, he's making $7 million a year, whether it's at Tennessee or somewhere else. So that's the thing you got to remember. The the It's a risk-reward thing at that level, too. It It is tougher to achieve what you want to achieve, but you get paid for that. And then if you do achieve it, you really get paid for that. Yeah, I mean, the quality of life thing is always the thing that I think of. And I'm not a head coach, so I don't know what that's like. But I would be – I feel like the stress level and the the grind that that would be would be would make it an unattractive place because of the expectations of the fan base, the conference that they play in, the tough recruiting territory that they're in, and the recent past of – potential NCAA sanctions, your entire roster transferring out. And it's just like how many – I think I read a stat somewhere that none of the previous five – it has been since Philip Fulmer that none of the Tennessee coaches have lasted longer than three years. And it's like now with the roster completely you know, gone, uh, are they going to give him time to actually do it? Because I've always thought this about Tennessee. It's like it's a place that you can win. Nashville is becoming a more and more – densely populated area for recruiting high school football talent. Um, it's in an area of the country where it's accessible to Ohio and different places. It's in a pretty good spot from a recruiting standpoint. They've three signed, hours from Atlanta. That's the yeah. key. Three-hour drive from Atlanta. And and they're like recruiting at a pretty high level. I mean, last year they signed the number 10 class. Now, granted, that was the number 7 ranked class in the SEC, which is just a disaster of a thought process because that's what I'm talking about when it comes to quality of life and and turning a program around. Um, and, you know, it's got tradition. It's got a passionate fan base. It's got a great stadium. It's got the Vol Navy. Like, there's a lot of really awesome things about that program that makes you think it has the bare bones to potentially be a really good football program again. Um, but I just know that whoever it's like a weird dynamic because whoever takes the job is going to need more than three years to get, get, get it to its peak. And I'm wondering if a, that person is Josh Heupel, if he'll be Tennessee's head coach in four years, because he might get another job or, or another opportunity to do something and see whether, or B whether Tennessee will even give him the, the opportunity and the time to do that. Because I feel like it's higher excitement, cool progress. Year one, a little bit of a backslide year two, year three, completely on the hot seat year four, they're gone. And it's like, that's the cycle right now. And if that continues to be the cycle, then nobody's going to be successful there because I think there's this vision uh, in Knoxville that they are already on the cusp of beating Alabama. And it's like, that's not the conversation yet. The conversation yet is being the fourth best team in the SEC, then recruiting like the fourth best team, 
then competing more with Alabama when you get the chance. It's like, I think you could say that, what do you think, that they're like the seventh best program or sixth best program in the entire conference right now, maybe? Well, okay, so I think the goal right now, the realistic goal to get to is third best program in the SEC East behind Georgia and Florida. And it's doable. You got to be better in South Carolina and Kentucky, basically. And you and, and Missouri. So that is a workable goal. That is something that can be reached, I think, fairly soon. So start there and then worry about being fourth best in the SEC. Because being fourth best in the SEC, I mean, that's actually really good. If you're fourth best in the SEC and you you upcycle and have a good year, you can win a national championship. Because where's LSU in the SEC right now? Yeah, let me ask you. I'll just go down the list. Is Tennessee okay. a better program than Florida? No. Is Tennessee a better program than Georgia? No. Is Tennessee a better program than Kentucky? Yes, should be. Is it? Is it now? Not right now, but should be. Okay, so there we could. Are they better than Missouri? About even, but I think Eli Drinkwitz is a pretty good coach, so they better get get on the proper trajectory, or yeah. you, you're going to have to worry about that. So we could see, yeah, because he's actually recruiting really well in St. Louis right now, which has always been you know an interesting thing to track. But so it's probably we could say better than South Carolina or better than Vanderbilt, right? So the right SEC now, yes. East, they're they're uh, they'd be fifth, and that's exactly where they they landed in the rankings last year. But if you go to the other side, are they better than LSU? But no, are they better than Mississippi State? Maybe yes, right now. Okay, well, your answer yeah. to that question are they are they better than are they better than Ole Miss? I don't know right now. Are they better than Arkansas right now, Mister Sam Pittman? Yeah, uh, they did lose to Arkansas this year, so. That's it. And as you and I have discussed, Arkansas has a surprising amount of talent relative to its record the two years before Sam Pittman. Yeah. Are they better than Auburn? No. So they're not better than Texas A&M, and they're not better than Alabama. So I think you can make a case that they're the third worst team in the SEC or program right now. And for Tennessee, who won a national championship when a lot of these fans weren't that, <laughs> weren't that young, uh, they're still – some hope there that this is going to turn into a situation where Tennessee is rolling like Georgia or Alabama. And it's just like, I feel like pump the brakes and definitively become better than Mississippi state, Arkansas, Ole Miss, South Carolina, Vanderbilt in Kentucky and Missouri, and then go from there. And it's like, that, and, and that's all stuff that can be done. It is. It is in the next two years. It, it is it all that all can be accomplished. So that's the good news. And then, and then if you, if you get to that, then you get, on the cusp of being on that level of if you're having a good year, you're a championship contender. I want to I so want to ask it, you another it question. Can do, it can happen. And this okay. will be fun because I like playing these games with you. So now that we know who Tennessee hired, I'm going to ask it a different way. Whose stock would you buy? And I'll just go down some of the teams that they're competing against to get into that five range. Would you buy Arkansas stock or Tennessee stock? <sighs> That's tough. I... I've got to figure out where the where the ceiling is for Arkansas. I think the ceiling's higher for Tennessee. It is absolutely so higher for Tennessee. Tennessee. Yeah. yeah. So, so I'd probably buy Tennessee stock. Okay. Ole Miss stock or Tennessee stock? I buy Ole Miss right now. I, I think the, the way they finish the season, plus the way the transfer rules are changing, because normally that Ole Miss roster would be a problem because it would take you two or three years to get the defense where it needed to be from a roster standpoint, but they might be able to just pluck some transfers and make it happen sooner. So Ole Miss could be pretty good 
this coming year. Yeah. Okay. Mississippi State stock. I buy Tennessee. Vanderbilt stock. Tennessee. South Carolina stock. That's a tougher one. Is is Shane Beamer going to be able to get the kind of players that they were getting when Shane Beamer was the recruiting coordinator? Because if they are, I'd take South Carolina. Because the, from a ceiling standpoint, I think South Carolina ceiling and Tennessee ceiling are very similar. So, uh, you know, you look at South Carolina, they, they won 11 games three years in a row from 2011 through 2013. So that is what ideally either one of these programs, that's kind of the high point right now. That's that's where you'd want to be. That is, uh, we're going to upload this video and I can't wait until until uh, you can see Ari's hair. Oh, because are we actually uploading tremendous. it? Because I... Uh I actually uh, woke well, up. We are now. Well, I woke up uh, early in the morning and swam laps at the at the pool. So I've got chlorine. Yeah, I know my watch told me, and I'm, I'm <laughs> trust me, I understand. I know yeah. every time you work out. So it's been a lot lately, but, hasn't it? That's right. That's exactly right. So, but yeah, the Tennessee South Carolina thing is interesting. It always kind of feels like that's the game that tips it one way or the other. If you remember correctly, Ari. It was the South Carolina game in 2016 that really was the downfall of Butch Jones because they had beaten Florida, they'd beaten Georgia, they lose to Alabama, but everybody expected that. They had lost to Texas A&M just in a, in a classic game, and they were still fine, though, until they lost to South Carolina, and then they were not fine, and then that was sort of the, the, the start of the tumbling down. Mm -hmm. So I do think South Carolina, Tennessee, they're, they're kind of – at odds, and and as long as Florida and Georgia are both good, South Carolina and Tennessee will be the ones fighting for that that next spot. Well, what's your answer, though? Hmm. I still think Tennessee, ultimately. I think the brand of Tennessee carries a little more. Okay, two, two more. Okay. Kentucky? Right now, I'd buy Kentucky. Upside, I'd buy Tennessee. And Missouri? Also tough because I think Eli Drinkwitz is a good coach, but I think I'm gonna. I, I think I'd take Tennessee there. I I think Tennessee should be the third best program in the East if they are coached properly and they are recruiting properly. That's where they, they they should fall. And then if Florida slips or Georgia slips, then they might be able to 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 take one of those spots. But it's not that. That's the thing. It is not an impossible job. People keep comparing it to Nebraska. It's not Nebraska. It's not. It's there are you are three hours from Atlanta. You are not far from Charlotte. You are not far from Nashville, which is going to be what Atlanta was 20 years ago in terms of a population boom. It's going to be like Phoenix or Atlanta, where the population is just exploding right now. And in the next few years, it's going to start pumping out more players. There's no reason they can't be really good. It's not impossible. It's, it's not the same thing as some of these programs that, that have geographic limitations in terms of recruiting. Tennessee does not have that. They, now, they have a weird state border situation where it's not like Georgia, where even if a kid didn't grow up in the state of Georgia or his family's not from Georgia, everywhere he goes, he sees that Bulldogs G. It's not like that. You see the power T everywhere in Tennessee, but the problem is, you may be so close to a border that you see a bunch of Ole Miss fans or a bunch of Alabama fans or a bunch of Kentucky fans because of just the way the state is shaped. So that part of it, 
you've got to overcome. But the thing is, you have to overcome that anyway. I mean, if you're recruiting in Atlanta, Georgia doesn't get all the best players from Atlanta. Some of them go to Alabama. Some of them go to Auburn. You know, uh, Clemson doesn't always get the best players from Charlotte. Some of them go to North Carolina. Some of them go to South Carolina. Like, it's possible to get what you need, but you've got to, you've just got to have the right people in place to do it. Cause like right now, I would, I think you can make the argument, even if you look at the uh, SEC standings, and I know that the wheels kind of fell off for Tennessee as the year went on, but they're already kind of right there. I mean, where, where, where you think they should be, you know, they were two games out of that right, spot. Because the, but the thing is, like, Mark Stoops has to work so hard to keep Kentucky at that, at that level. It's so much harder to do that at Kentucky than it is at Tennessee. So that that's the thing that that you've got to remember. And and Shane Beamer has a tough job too. That program has historically not been that good. I think the way the dynamics work now, South Carolina becomes a little like Tennessee in terms of well, you're pretty close to Atlanta. You're you're close to North Florida. You your state itself produces some really good players, but the problem is you've got an in-state school in Clemson that that's going to get most of the good ones. So it's not it's not that different. So that that's why I keep comparing those two close together. Let's let's move on to to our next question though, and this is we don't have to spend too long on this one, but it is something that that I've noticed as well that just sort of messes with my head a little bit, and it's from Andy in Atlanta. Can we stop the photoshopping of pictures of newly hired coaches to show them in their new team's colors? Brian Harson had never been to the state of Alabama, but 37 seconds after he was hired at Auburn, there were pictures of him in an Auburn hat and shirt. Every school does this, and I argue it has to stop. And it does, it, like, you know, it's the, the uncanny valley is, is the term that they use in, in movie making. And if you, if you saw the trailer for the movie version of Cats, I'm sure you didn't actually watch the movie version of Cats, at least I hope you didn't. Uh, but if you saw the trailer for it, you were super creeped out because they look too close to human. Like it's they're not human, but they're a little too close. And it just makes your mind go crazy. I feel the same way when it's a coach who I've seen in X gear for eight years. And suddenly you photoshopped him into the new team's gear. I need time to adjust. I need to see him at the press conference in the, the team color tie before I see him in the polo shirt. I just I, I need the time to adjust. I can't handle the the constant immediate photoshops. And Ari, I blame recruiting because it's the recruiting edits that, that started this. Yeah, yeah. I think that's exactly what I was going to say. Uh, what do we think of coaches photoshopped before they get uh, jobs? Because I've seen uh, I've seen photoshops of Urban Meyer wearing Michigan stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that's just a mess with people. Well, uh, but it, I mean, in the NFL, you've got that every. You, you can find a Photoshop of Deshaun Watson wearing everything Every uniform, except Houston yeah. Texans <laughs> gear. So it's it's pretty easy. I mean, before Matthew Stafford got traded, you could find Matthew Stafford in every uniform. And, and you saw him in a Rams uniform immediately. But I so, also am kind of neurotic because when you read stories, um, just sports journalist stories uh, online, and they write about a new coach, and the picture is their old school, I think that's it kind of grosses me out too. So I think I would take the Photoshop <laughs> over like the most recent photo, if, even if it is a Photoshop, over outdated old pictures of somebody wearing the team colors, and, and that team has nothing to do with what you're writing about. 
Also, at one point, at what point is Adidas or Nike going to sue over this? Like, I was thinking about this when when Steve Sarkeesian got got hired at Texas. You know, Texas and Alabama are both Nike schools, so really, you just do the the dump fill on Photoshop, where you you remove the crimson and put in the burnt orange, and you could just leave the swoosh right there. Because they always find a you try to find a, picture selection is important in this. You try to find one that doesn't have the logo, where their hands like covering the logo of the team so you don't have to work that out to try to put the new logo on so you just get the color but you got the swoosh so what happens if somebody moves from an adidas school to a nike school and you you pull that adidas logo off and put a and put a swoosh on it sounds like you have a case they're gonna like that yeah i I, I think so (laughs) um yeah i i uh i think there could be a settlement there I, I, all right, good. I'm glad. I'm glad I'm not the only one who's completely weirded out by those. It, it is. It's cool. I, I feel it's like it's cooler with the players than it is with the coaches. It just looks weird with the coaches, and especially when it's really bad. Especially when they do try to change the logos out, because that never quite works. It's never the right size. It just just don't do it. Just you, you hired him from Boise State. Put a picture up of him, and and, and, and still. That's also orange and blue, different shade of blue than Auburn, but it's still also orange and blue, and that's where he coached. It's okay. That's a real picture of him. All right, we'll move on. (laughs) Speaking of Steve Sarkeesian, this is from Shane, and this is actually from your mailbag. This is one of the submissions to your mailbag. You went into my mailbag and and took it? I. I did. I did. Is that okay? Yeah, I read your mail. Yes, you're, of course that's okay. It's not. It's not a federal offense because it is on the internet. So uh, <laughs> th- this one's from Shane. How possible do you think it is that Sark flips Quinn Ewers, or would anybody else? So uh, for backstory, Quinn Ewers is the class of 2022 quarterback from the Dallas area, who originally was c- uh, committed to Texas uh, under Tom Herman. He then decommitted from Texas and has committed since to Ohio State. So Ari. Take it away. Does the new staff at Texas have any chance? Well, I think that um, I was first off going to say that I uh, live like 35 minutes away from his high school and am trying desperately to go there to do a profile on him um, so that I could easily answer this question a little bit better than I could right now. But just in theory, um, his first choice was Texas. So let's not forget that. He is a Texas kid. He's one of the best players he's the number one player in the 2022 class and he has to be uh sark's first home run swing and he has to swing a thousand times and if he says no then sark goes back and swings again and then you you make him say no a thousand times before you give up and it might be until february of next year or until he signs in december because this is the type of prospect that can prop you up uh, as a new head coach for the years to come and you know, and I, it's not just for what that person can do on the field. It, you you got to remember with a highly yeah. rated quarterback, it, it also kind of helps the rest of your recruiting class. That that person usually becomes your lead recruiter. Absolutely. And then when other five star prospects in Texas see that the number one quarterback in the state is going to Texas, then all of a sudden Texas becomes the place for all the other high end quarterbacks, non quarterback recruits to go to. Um, so in terms of whether or not they have a chance, um, I would say maybe thirty five percent. Um, which I think is a pretty high percentage because once he committed to Ohio State, it felt over. And this is just based on hunch and what I've known about recruiting in the past and, and kind of patterns that you've seen. And it's like he committed to Texas. 
Then when it seemed like things weren't going the right way with Tom Herman, he decommitted. And I think that his decommitment was one of the straws that broke the camel's back, honestly, when it came to Texas's um, positioning with Herman. But now you have this offensive guru who just put on a clinic in the national championship and embarrassed Ohio State's defense, leaves from Alabama, comes to Texas, is already uh, in a closely contested battle for LJ Johnson in the 2020 class, like, or 2021 class. Like, he's already there. And it's like, of any coach that could sway a five star prospect from his home state to stay home um, right now, don't you think that Sark is probably the best candidate to do so? Now, I know that Ohio State had been playing in the playoff and Justin Fields was quite the success and Ryan Day is known as a quarterback guru, but like if anybody was going to do it, it seems like to me that the circumstance of this hire and the timing of the hire and who this person is and what that person just did, um, especially considering the fact that it happened against Ohio State, is kind of a statement. So I can tell you one thing. Ohio State fans are nervous about it. And, you know, Quinn's not talking very much. um, And, you know, right now there's been no indication that he's going to flip. But as the year goes on and as Sark gets more time to get to know him and recruit him, I think there's a chance that it could happen for sure. Well, and, and I'm curious because, you know, he was committed to Texas under Herman. He flipped when it became kind of clear that Herman was in trouble. And so was it Tom Herman that he was he was really wanting to play for? Yeah, and there's and, other and, factors too. Like I think a lot of times when we look at recruiting, Andy, we just go, we look binary and just think, oh, well, they're not winning games. Tom Herman's on the hot seat. He flipped. It's like relationships, location, all those other things too. Like there's a lot, there's a million different things that go on behind the scenes um, that could make somebody want to change their mind outside of just the team's not very good right now. And it's like a lot of times, I think the exact opposite happens. When a team isn't very good, a recruit is more likely to want to go there because they feel like they're the missing link. Like it's very easy to think if you're the number one player in the country um, that you are the person that's going to change that. And I think that that's more attractive than going and being one of four uh, quarterbacks in Ohio State's room to try to find the job. And if you go analyze Ohio State's quarterback room right now, you've got two kids from the 2020 class, one of which is a top 70 player and, and CJ top 50 player, CJ Stroud. And and then you have Jack Miller. And then this year coming in as a five-star quarterback named Kyle McCord. And then next year uh, for the way it's all set up right now is, is yours. So when you look at everything that's going on there, the path to the field at Ohio State's going to be blocked much more too. So, you know, there's other factors in play here besides just who's the best coach and who's winning the most. And I think it's important to kind of remind ourselves of how complex these decisions can be from a recruiting standpoint because it isn't just who's got a better coach right now and who is in the playoff most recently. We'll be right back after this message from one of our lovely sponsors. All right, let's go to our last question from Brian in Buford, Georgia. You're an AD hiring a new football coach for your school, but the only way you're allowed to separate candidates is based on what they order when you take them out to the local steakhouse. What are you looking for to narrow down your search and identify a great coach? And this will lead us into our random ranking. Our random ranking is going to be cuts of steak. But first, Ari, we have to talk about how this dinner is going to go and what we're going to use as our differentiating factors. And I can tell you right now, uh, if he's mean to the server... I'm marking them off for that. So that's that's obvious. But that's that's any job interview situation. But there's one thing that can automatically disqualify you if you are interviewing for a job and we are eating at a steakhouse and I'm trying to decide to hire you. If you order your steak well done, 
we're done. I'm out. <laughs> I, I'm just like palms on the table. <laughs> I'm out. We, we're we're like it, it's always interesting because at a at a nice steakhouse, you, the the servers will try to help you. If they if you ask for something well done, they will kind of look at you and they'll say, "Are you sure?" They'll say, "Our chef doesn't recommend that," because they know you're going to complain because they know it's going to taste terrible. They know they're going to cook all the flavor out of it. And they know you don't know that. And so they're trying to help you. And I just feel like I need a coach who wants the taste of red meat in his mouth. I don't want a coach who wants a steak completely burned. I mean, he's, he may as well put ketchup on it after that. I order my steak rare. So I don't know if I just got points with you. I don't know. how. You, are you medium rare or rare? Oh, I'm rare. I, I, I want blood. Yeah, I mean, it's, I want I want it basically still moving. Just just walk it through the kitchen and put it on a plate. It's so much better. It's softer. It's tastier. I don't want to eat a leather belt. Uh, that's not what I'm I'm into. But the question is, what do they order um, for you to to um, gain points? And like I know, and I kind of wish the random ranking was steakhouse sides because like that to me is. We can we, we can. Change I don't want to. I don't want to hijack you, but I get the same cut of steak every time. I get a ribeye what, what every get? single okay. time. You know, well, so like let's I do that because I'm I'm a ribeye guy myself. The and I was gonna go gonna go real high class with the the spinalis ri- portion of the ribeye, which is the best portion of the ribeye. It is the the best cut of steak you can get. So I was gonna do that number one, but we can let's change on the fly. Let's go to steakhouse sides. And actually that was a uh, request for a random ranking in my mailbag a couple weeks ago. Oh, I just okay. Didn't, I didn't mean to didn't hijack actually get you. to it. Oh no no I just didn't actually get to it. So now I gotta think about it though. Okay. I, gonna, I I will take a second, but while you're thinking about it, I wanted to say something. So Okay. My girlfriend doesn't eat red meat. So when we go to nice dinners and she likes steakhouses, she never gets a steak. And the one thing I wanted to say that I was put onto recently um, at a few nice pl- dinners that we had in, in the past six months was she gets a um, tuna steak or seared tuna at these places. Oh, yeah. And it is oh, delicious. And like I yes. never in a million years before I met her would have ever ordered seared big eye tuna at a steakhouse. And every single time she gets it and I try it when it has the uh, sesame seeds and it's crusted, it is delicious. And I would say oh, that I, I could make the argument that those tuna steaks are better than some cuts of meat. So, you know, ribeye is so obviously the number one. we're going with sides and not starters, though, right? We don't have the Tower of Crustaceans available for our list. Yeah, like, I like I don't know how you'd want to put, like, shrimp cocktail, but I would put that under a starter and not a side. That's a starter, exactly. Okay, so yeah, I would yeah. just go straight sides. Yeah, these are veggies and, and starches, basically. Yes, well, all mine are starches. Part. I don't have veggies on mine. <laughs> I do have some veggies. So, all right. Well, let's let's go with your number five, and hopefully I will have mine in order. Okay, right my number five is French fries. And I know that that's kind of a, you know, burger mentality, but I think that these steak-cut fries at these high-end restaurants are legitimately delicious. And I think it's a really good compliment. If you're eating something with a fork and a knife, um, to be able to put the fork and the knife down in between big bites and and have something starchy like a fried potato, um, I think is um, a, a great side. And my father always gets French fries at steakhouses. And I don't know if that's like a tacky thing to do. Most of these places have them. Some of them don't. But um, 
I think that it's almost a must when you're at, at, at a steakhouse to at least kind of break it up a little bit. Another question. Do salads count? Is, Come on. Are we counting let's salads? Let's cut the healthy crap and just let's go with no, the... Th- these, these salads are not healthy, and I have a, no, I, I know. I have you a put very enough, strong feeling about this. Uh, blue I, cheese I have on a there. rant because a lot of people at steakhouses get the wedge salad, yeah. and I'm here to tell you that's the stupidest thing ever. Iceberg lettuce is not fit to feed a turtle. Like I, I, I always remember... My girlfriend in college, I went to her house one time and and her mom was making salad. And I said, oh, you know, do you guys use romaine all the time? And she said, yes. And I had grown up eating iceberg. And she goes, we used to eat iceberg, but then we, we got a turtle. And the people at the pet store told us that we would kill the turtle if we fed it iceberg. So we needed to buy it romaine or something. <laughs> iceberg. And I said, that's a pretty good way to live life. So the, the, the wedge salad, for those who don't know, is just somebody cuts it hunk a head of iceberg lettuce and dumps an entire bottle of blue cheese dressing on it and probably put some bacon bits bacon bits that's awful and then I mean, sometimes bacon, bacon parts good sometimes they also put like vinaigrette in the lettuce too so it, it meant like if you get a really good wedge salad and you have to cut it almost like a steak so you don't just like take chunks out of it i mean you you take your knife and you and you you cut it open so like i I think that a good wedge salad is actually pretty good. Um, I don't know that it's my favorite type of lettuce, to your point, but I would pour blue cheese into a bathtub and dive into it head first. So, like, Bleh. I don't know if I'm like a. I had a Bleh. feeling you weren't going to like blue cheese because if you don't like mayo, they're too similar. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily. I don't like blue cheese dressing. I'll, I'll eat some gorgonzola. On Do you a like salad. ranch? It's okay. No, no. So, the salad that you should be getting, and my number five is the grilled Caesar, where they take the romaine, the giant full leaves of romaine, and they kiss them on the grill. So you get that nice smoky flavor, and then they add the, the Caesar dressing. If they make it table side, that's a bonus. But that's that's your number five. What, what's number four? Imagine having the ability to put a starch on the list and then putting a salad in there instead. Like, I mean, I always... Whenever I go to a steakhouse, there's always a salad. But if we're up to me and there weren't people judging me, it would just be a bunch of starches. Ari, if if I eat more starch, I can eat less steak. So that means I leave room for more steak. A nice piece of steak to take home. And I'm and I like and I don't know if who you, takes this, home steak. Everybody, I would what eat. Are you st- a, I would eat. Have you never taken a steak? Are home? you like the ch- captain of the cheerleaders going to prom? What have what, you? What, okay. what, is, what is this? Okay, here's what. I want to say, have you ever had leftover steak? If you go with a big party in your family or something, had leftover steak, whether it's yours or somebody else's, and then the next day, it's never had, been mine. The next, well, yeah, and yours are always a uh, you know ninety one ounces too. So like, I, I, I eat the I eat the other person's steak at the restaurant. Ari, it doesn't <laughs> get home. Have you ever had leftover steak in your family where you woke up the next day, it was cold, you warm it up just a little bit and put it between two pieces of fresh challah bread? You got a steak sandwich the next day. Holla. Holla. That sounds pretty okay. awesome. So that, this, that does sound pretty awesome. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not an amateur here, okay? I gotta go swimming laps at the pool because I've been through the I've been through it too. But my number four is creamed spinach. Um, I love creamed spinach. And if you go to a place, I actually was in Vegas um a few months ago when we went to the palm. I could drink their cream spinach out of the boat. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do like the cream spinach. It did not make my list, but it is. I, I, I will have some if you've ordered it family style. Yeah. Uh, my number four, sautéed mushrooms. I love a good pile of sautéed mushrooms with a steak. It's just a. It's a perfect compliment. 
that didn't make my list, but every time I get a steak, I put it on there. So maybe it should have. I didn't think of that as a side. I thought of it as like a steak topper. That's it, it's true. I mean, like the au poivre sauce and and yeah. and the mushrooms. Yeah. But no, I I I get them whenever I can. I I love a good just especially at the steakhouse when they give you the big boat of them and you yeah. just dump them on there. You uh. I cannot wait to get to the top of your list because I have no idea where this is headed, and it's amazing. Um, okay, my number three is garlic mashed potatoes. Um, I think that mashed potatoes are hit and miss sometimes, and a lot of times uh, I like mashed potatoes that are just simple. The ones that taste like they came out of the box sometimes are really good to me, but steakhouses are always legit. They always have a little garlic in there. There's a little chunks of baked potato in there. Garlic mash all day. I like mashed potatoes. They did not make my list because, again, that just fills you up too much. You can't eat as much steak, uh, which is weird because if the bread's good, I'm eating a ton of bread, too. Yeah, I was going to call you out on that because most of these steakhouses have the <laughs> best assortment of bread baskets that you'll find this uh, Well, this that's side the, of the other world. thing. That's the other reason why I've got to go veggies for the most part. There is one starch on my list. but I don't want to fill myself veggies. up with a veggie when I can have a starch or steak. You don't really fill yourself up with veggies. That's the beauty of it. But they're delicious and, and fresh tasting. And it's, it's a wonderful compliment. So number three for me, giant asparagus spears. Listen, if I'm at a fancy steakhouse, I don't want wimpy asparagus spears. I want jack and a beanstalk asparagus. I want to turn it on its end and be able to climb it. When we go to our first steakhouse dinner, it's going to be very expensive because our orders are going to be very different and everybody's going to win. Um yeah, I, I, asparagus is good. I think that it's a staple with the steak. Um, and, you know, the big ones that are like super thick um, are definitely tasty. And I've never seen them that big in a grocery store, so I don't know where these places get them from. It's all steroids, Ari. Yeah, I know. Human growth pump, hormone. Pumping the asparagus <laughs> full of steroids. <laughs> asparagus growth hormone. Why do you think your pee smells so funny afterwards? All right. What, what is your number number two? My number two is the third potato on my list. And the reason why there's three potatoes <laughs> out of five is because. Um, and I didn't want to put the, the fourth potato on there, but hash browns aren't offered everywhere. I think hash browns are part of the deal, too. But my number two is a baked potato. If you don't have a baked potato on your plate when you're eating a steak, then you're not a man. See, I think of baked potato as a more down market steakhouse. Kind of, they're like we used to go to steak and ale. That was fancy eating when I was a kid. You, of course, got the baked potato. You got that sucker loaded. And you had the, the salad bar where they had the cold plates. But if you're going to a place where you're going to drop a couple hundred bucks, baked potato is a little basic. That's that's the only problem. Yeah, I, I just feel like it's a staple. And I don't know if you've ever been to Mastro's, but their baked potato is a pound. So, like, I mean, they're not messing I, around I there have. either. It's a 17 Again. Yeah, <laughs> it's a 17 pound keeping baked potato. you from eating more steak. <laughs> yeah, there's there's nothing uh, there's nothing uh, basic about a baked potato at Mastro. So um, I, I get what you're saying. And a, a lot of these places. Um, and when I said my father gets French fries, if there's hash browns on the menu, he always gets the hash browns. But they're just not everywhere. And hash browns would have made my list if they were more common. And I'm just going to contradict myself completely when I give you my number two, because it is a very basic side. It is perhaps the most basic side, but I love them when done correctly at a steakhouse. And that is truffle fries. Mm -hmm. A lot of places do these a lot of, you know, the thick cut and they shave the truffle over them and they are tremendous. They're so good with steak. I, I just it's a, it's a very simple side. It, it's not there's really nothing fancy to it other than shaving truffle over a very basic potato that's fried, but 
I love it. That that's that's my number two, and and on some nights it's my number one. Where I gotta have that one. So you spent my entire list ridiculing me for potatoes, and then your number two is a potato. Yeah, but it's the best one. Yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't I wouldn't be upset if somebody put those down in front of me. Let's put it that way. But like I I I think potato is the most important compliment in any form to red meat. Okay, my number one is, and this is maybe a specialty side, and maybe not everybody has it because. But like when I when you said steakhouse sides and like cuts of meat, I was thinking like fine dining, like expensive oh, two hundred dollars. Yeah. yeah, no, we're thinking houses. the, the yeah. fancy steakhouses. Yeah, and most of these places have that. I think lobster macaroni and cheese is the greatest thing on earth. Oh, that is a good one. And it's not something that is very easily found. And a lot of times, the only well, really, the only time I see lobster mac and cheese on the menu is at a Mastro's or a place like the Palm and Ve- or something like that. So, to me. Um, they're usually pretty expensive. I think if I remember correctly, when I went to Mastro's, we got uh, lobster mac, uh, lobster mac and cheese, and it was like sixty one dollars for the side. They're not always that expensive. Yeah, right? but like there were like, real I, cuts of lobster. Like when it's not just yeah. like little bits of lobster. I'm talking like macaroni and cheese with a big hunk of it. Yeah, and like that it, is it, so it, good. It's very good. It is yeah. very very good. Uh, that one did not make my list. I, I'm a huge mac and cheese fan. I'm a huge mac and cheese as a side fan. I think it's the best Thanksgiving side there is. I make a great mac and cheese that I, I like saw. The recipe that I, I stole. Saw. <laughs> so, um, so I, I'm a huge mac. But the thing is, and, and this is the reason it's not on my list. My mac and cheese is better than all these steakhouses. So you sent me a picture of that mac and cheese, and I was on the highway, and my life almost. I like grabbed the wheel, and I felt like I, <laughs> I, I tensed up. And I was like, I yeah, was driving northbound and your house was south. I didn't know what to do. <laughs> that's the problem is is it that and and I I stole it from uh from Union Woodshop in Clarkston, Michigan, which is a barbecue place. Clarkston Union is the sister restaurant where this mac and cheese was born. And I took the recipe and added my own little twist of of giant chunks of thick cut bacon. And you can't you can't beat it. It's so much better than what you get at, at any other restaurant. And so that's the only reason why mac and cheese doesn't make this list. I, I do like lobster mac and cheese and will order it sometimes. But the problem is I, I'm always almost always disappointed because this mac and cheese sets such a high bar. So I blame you, Clarkston Union, for this. And uh, it's okay, though. It's, it's worth it. Uh, my number one is Brussels sprouts. I love Brussels sprouts. And when you get them in a steakhouse... You almost always get them with the massive chunks of thick bacon in them, like the huge chewy chunks that look like a basically look like a, a piece of bacon gum, and uh, that is that's what I want because that is a great compliment to the steak. It's a nice clean taste, even though it is not good for you. With, with with all the oil and the bacon and everything else, it's definitely not low calorie, but it is delicious and it is a perfect compliment. The best Brussels sprout will be just as bad for you as a French fry if they do it the right no way. No question. Um, and two things I wanted to add while we're on steakhouses, Andy. I'm a huge. There's two things that I like to start with besides eating the entire basket of bread before the menu comes. I love French onion soup. Those aren't always in. Nice steakhouses, but if it's on the menu, that's a must. And I love shrimp cocktail. I do love a, a good shrimp cocktail, and obviously St. Elmo in Indianapolis is the most famous of those. And it's a little bit, uh, you know, kind of stunt work where they they put so much horseradish in that it really like it is a shock to the system when you eat I it. I love it, but 
the the reason I love it so much is I had the worst cold, one of the worst colds I've ever had. The first time I ate at San Elmo, I was covering the the Final Four up there in 2006, and I just felt horrible, almost too bad to leave my room. And my friends like we got a we got a reservation at San Elmo. You got to go. The only time I could breathe that entire trip was after eating San Elmo shrimp cocktail. So I, every time I have it, I think of that and I'm like. Yep, this is totally worth it. St. Elmo doesn't have baked potato on the menu, by the way. And I found that to be they quite don't. odd. Interesting. Yeah, when I went there, well, they, uh, we had that big college football staff summit there, and we went to St. Elmo, and there was no baked potato. And I was like, what's going on here? Maybe they thought I was too <laughs> basic. It's an Indianapolis thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> Ari, if we've learned anything through this, you are anything but basic, even <laughs> if your taste in starches are basic. Odd, not basic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> It's been a pleasure. Thank you for your your input. We love answering your questions. Please keep them coming. Thank you, Ari. And we will talk to you on Wednesday.